0: Hey, glad to have you guys tuning in today. Do me a favor, take your Bibles, turn to John 14. Uh, we are continuing a series that we started before Easter called How to Thrive When Life is Scary. And uh, as you're finding your way to John 14, we're gonna be in verses two and three this morning. Uh, it's interesting, I was thinking back, back when Cal was in junior high, I got the wonderful idea to um, take his Tri-Cities Striker team. He was a soccer player. I was the coach. And I registered them to play in the National Indoor Soccer Tournament in Cleveland, Ohio. So we drove over to Cleveland. We stayed in a hotel. We got up early on a Saturday morning for our first game, not knowing exactly what to expect. And what I remember about that first game is we played a team from Rochester, New York. And at the end of the game, I looked up at the scoreboard and we had lost 14 to nothing. So two touchdowns, but This wasn't football. This was soccer. So that's pretty much of a complete annihilation. And we left that game. It was early. I think that game started at 7 a.m. and we grabbed breakfast on the way back to our hotel. We had another game late morning and we swung in McDonald's. And as we were leaving McDonald's, I was talking to my assistant coach. He was in the car next to me sitting in the passenger seat and uh, he was putting cream and sugar into the coffee that he had just ordered. And I wasn't paying real good attention to what he was doing, and I kind of punched it off a stoplight, and the coffee spilled into his lap, and so he spent the rest of his weekend uh, at the hotel in bed with ice, and uh, we went back to the late morning game and played a little better. We only lost um, nine to nothing, so no touchdowns, but three field goals. And um, as we got ready to play our last game on Saturday afternoon, it's interesting, we got the kids into the locker room and we were preparing them to go to the field. And I kind of sat there and looked into the eyes of these junior hires who uh, were not really all that excited about taking the field. They had been beat, they had been broken. They just had been completely demoralized. And as I turned to John 14, that's kind of the feeling, the vibe in the room as Jesus is addressing his disciples. They're scared. And uh, they know what's coming is, is gonna be difficult. They know that it's gonna be bad. The, crowd, the, the city of Jerusalem is turned on them and um, they're scared and their hearts are troubled. And they're looking for Jesus to give them a, a pep talk, some encouragement, some basically like, hey, help us get through what comes next. And I want you to look at what Jesus says. We looked the first week of this series and Cal taught on this phrase, don't let or let not your heart be troubled. Or, or maybe better yet, don't let your heart shudder. Don't, don't be afraid. In John 14, 27, at the end of this chapter, it says, let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And Cal talked about this idea that so we can't let fear rule in our hearts. It's natural sometimes to have troubled hearts, but the reality is we can't see the world just through the lens of our own anxiety, our own fear. And he gave us different ways. He gave a list of ways to get our minds focused in the right place. He mentioned that we need to take care of ourselves physically and talk to God and don't miss the opportunity when possible to press into community. And then we looked at the next phrase, believe in God, believe also in me. And I talked about this idea that believing in God in and of itself, it it isn't enough to solve our problem. It actually just makes us aware of the divide that exists between us and a holy God. creates the crisis. But Jesus doesn't just say, believe in God. He says, believe also in me. And, and what he's saying when he says that is, he says, listen, I'm the remedy. And then Ryan kind of picked up the same theme as he spoke on Good Friday. How can Jesus be the remedy? How can this be? Well, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just take our guilt, but he also, the Bible's really clear on this. He, he bore our shame. And what we learned is because of what Jesus accomplished in our place on the cross is that as Jesus took our shame, all of these things in our life, all of these places where we fall short, Jesus bore all of that in our place. And when God looks down and sees us, he no longer sees our guilt, he no longer sees our shame, he sees the work of Jesus Christ, that we are loved, we are accepted. And then Cal on Easter morning talking about the implications of an empty tomb, the fact that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we have a better future that lies in front of us. These are some of the same things that we're going to see Jesus communicate here in the first couple of verses of John 14 to help his disciples get through a season that for them was really scary. And so let me pick it up in verse where it basically says this, it says, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes on and says, in my father's house are many rooms. The King James version says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. And um, heaven's described as a lot of things in this first phrase, even when it says, in my father's house, that's a description of heaven. That's a word picture. And throughout other passages in the New Testament heaven's described as a country because it's, it's vast, it's, it's large, it's described as a city, it has a lot of inhabitants, it's described as a kingdom, there is a king that rules, it is described as paradise, it is Eden restored, it is a place of rest where finally the followers of Jesus Christ who have battled sin their entire physical lives can rest from that battle. There's a lot of passages in scripture that give us pictures of what heaven looks like. In Revelation four, there's a large and detailed description. The entire chapter, John is describing what it looks like to be in the throne room of God. In Revelation seven, we see a multitude gathered in heaven and it says in verse seven or in verse 16 of chapter seven, John says, they're gonna hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be their shepherd and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. In Revelation 21, the actual measurements of the city of New Jerusalem are given to us. The city is measured and it's told of us in a description of heaven in verse three. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man who wipe every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. And, And the problem in talking about heaven is not that we don't get great descriptions in scripture of what heaven's like. The problem is it's very hard for us to comprehend or relate to because like it says in Revelation 21, the former things have passed away. Everything is new. It's difficult for us to relate to these descriptions and understand what heaven's gonna be like. So what we do to solve the problem is we're always looking for more details. Like we've always got these specific questions on what is it going to be like when we get to heaven? Like, how old am I going to be? Am I going to be in my teens? Am I going to be in my twenties? Am I going to be in my fifties? Like, like, how old are we all in heaven? Will we recognize each other? And a lot of these are answered, but in some things we've just got to say, we don't know. It's beyond us. I remember a few Years ago, I had this incredible opportunity. We were planning some churches in Liberia, a very poor country on the west side of Africa. And their main city is Monrovia. And when you think of Monrovia, it is basically just a glorified extended slum. And the pastor that we were working with from Monrovia, we had the opportunity to bring him over to the United States. And I drove down to Chicago and picked him up at O'Hare Airport. And as I was showing him the city, what I did was I stopped in, into Chicago, I was developing a condo project down there. This was before I was a pastor. I was involved in real estate. And I took him up to the 42nd story of this building, which overlooked the city. And there's kind of an exercise area and a pool up there. And as we stood looking at uh, the city of Chicago, the pastor made the comment to me. He goes, man, if this is Chicago, what is heaven like? And, and, and how will I ever go back to Monrovia and describe what I'm seeing to to my wife, to my church. This is beyond anything that I could ever have imagined. That's what heaven's like. So sure, we want details like, hey, will there be golf courses in heaven? Absolutely. Um, Will we fish in heaven? Yeah, everything will probably be catch and release, but I believe there's gonna be fishing in heaven. Will there be cooking shows in heaven? No. Pets? Um, Dogs, yes. Cats, no. That just is self-evident. Those things are obvious. Kristen and I have been kicking around even during this time where we've been home so much. Are are we gonna be married in heaven? And I know some of you are thinking, well, back in the gospels, Jesus says there's gonna be no giving of marriage in heaven, but that doesn't answer the question. We're looking for a loophole. Like, are we married in heaven? Like, if we're already married when we get there, do we get to stay married? Because believe it or not, after 37 years, we still like being married to each other. So we're talking about this, are we gonna be married or not? So I've been telling her during this quarantine or this stay at home time, I'm like, hey, this is kind of a taste of heaven for you, baby, having me home every day. This is what it's gonna be like. And I think she's starting to weaken on her conviction that uh, we're gonna be married in heaven, but we don't have all the details. Heaven is like describing to a blind man what it's like to see, what sight is like, or to somebody who's never heard what sound sounds like. So what I find interesting in this Passage, as Jesus is preparing his disciples to enter scary times, he talks to them about heaven. But I I want you to think about what he focuses on, what, what he tells them about heaven. I think it's important for us to understand what in this critical moment he chose to emphasize that will help us to thrive as we enter scary times. Here's the first thing when he says, In my father's house, there are many rooms. If you're keeping notes here, would be the first thing. Jesus is saying, remember, uh, you belong. I could have said you are home, but I chose to say you belong. What this is talking about is this idea that we belong. Now, again, King James, it says mansions. That gives a impression that we all have our own special place or this huge house that we own for all eternity. But the the problem with that, and I would say this is even the big idea as I talk this morning, the picture of heaven that Jesus gives us is, listen, it's not about what you possess. Heaven's not about what you possess. It's about who possesses you. And the first thing that Jesus tells his troubled disciples is when you get to heaven, you're home, you belong. And I know this is a little bit hard to teach kind of in this season when we've all been home so much and we're like, get me out of here. But normally what is true about home is, well, that that idea like there's no place like home, there's no place like home, and I'm kind of clicking my ruby slippers as I say that. But often home's the most important piece in a person's life. It's the thing that's most important to them. Somewhere in the last month, I'm losing track of time if I'm honest, but somewhere in the last couple of weeks, I, I watched a documentary and it was a story about a woman by the name of Edith Macefield, and she was in her, She lived in a suburban area of Seattle out on the West Coast. And a developer approached her and offered her first $750,000 and then a million dollars for her small home. Her home was in the path of future development. And Edith was like, no way. I don't need money. I don't need anything that money can afford me. The only thing that is of value to me is the fact that I get to stay in my home. So she wouldn't sell. So it's interesting that a developer made adjustments to his plans and he went on with his plans, but Edith held firm and her house remained. And it's interesting, Disney kind of picked up on the story. It became the inspiration for a movie Disney produced maybe five, 10 years ago by the name of Up. And uh, it was the inspiration behind that story. But home is it's where we're comfortable. It's where we have a sense of belonging. It's like we we know where everything is. It's where we are comfortable. And what Jesus is telling these men in the midst of this scary time, men who have left their homes to follow him, men who will never go home. These men are the apostles. That term apostles means that they are sent out. These men are not gonna have a home in this world. But what he's telling them is, is, he's saying, listen, in my father's home, there's many rooms, you're going to be home. I'm preparing a place for you. Now, when I talk about home, I also understand that there's some in this room who didn't grow up uh, in a home that was, that was healthy, that home doesn't represent a lot of warm memories for you. Um, Kristen and I have six kids. Our Two youngest daughters we adopted from Romania when they were six years old. They had spent some time in an orphanage there. And it was interesting when we brought them back to the States, they had no concept of family and no concept of home. So we would take them to the church that we were attending back then. And every Sunday was an adventure because while we were taking them to church, what they were doing is they were auditioning other men and women into the church that would make better moms and dads than Kristen and I. So we would go through the service and after the service, we would find our twins attached to some other young couple that they thought would be better parents than we were. And we would have to pry them off the legs of these strangers or these people that we knew because the twins didn't want to come home with us. They had no sense of home. It just wasn't anything that they'd ever experienced before. And just one of the things that Kristen and I did as our kids were growing up, if we were across a room or if they were at some school play or performance or on some sports field, we would always signal to our kids and we would put up just three fingers and we would be like, our kids knew that when we flashed them the three sign, that meant, I love you. And so they would often flash it back to us too. And we'd be like three and the kids would be three back to us. But it was interesting with the twins, we, trained, we changed it. And rather than flashing them three, it was important for them. We would always go four with our twins. And what that meant to them was, I love you forever. This isn't going to change, man. You're, you're home, you're safe here. Sadly, so many people go through life believing that if they don't, behave a certain way, if people could see how they really were, if people could understand what they were thinking, man, whatever acceptance they've experienced would disappear. They have this very frail view of home, but home is a place. And what Jesus is describing here when he says, in my father's house, it's like, listen, you were fully known and you are fully loved and nobody will ever take that away from you. C.S. Lewis describes this longing for home, this longing that we have for heaven has the inconsolable longing that is in every man's heart. It's part of something within us that it doesn't matter what you possess or what relationships you have, there's always a longing for something more. I'm pretty fired up because Sunday night, there's going to be this new documentary that is gonna be airing on ESPN. It's an 11 part documentary um, called The Last Dance. It's on the final championship season of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. So growing up in Chicago, like this is a big deal for me. I've been waiting for this thing to come out for six months. But as I was thinking about that, I was reminded about something I read about Michael Jordan maybe six or seven years ago. There was a man by the name of David Zarin. He's a kind of a political sports writer. He's written several books on men like Muhammad Ali and uh, just written a lot of different sports books. And he wrote an article on Michael Jordan uh, when he had his 50th birthday. It was entitled Citizen Mike, Michael Jordan at 50. And listen to what he says. He says, from a distance, Jordan's experience must resemble fantasy the athlete who accumulated enough wealth to make the ultimate transition from NBA player to NBA owner. Yet there is little to admire about Michael Jordan at 50. If anything, the more you learn, the more you recoil. We all know the story of the pro athlete who ends up bankrupt, but what happens to the athlete who gains the world, yet stews in a state of perpetual dissatisfaction? He says, this is Jordan. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he states that if I find myself having desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for a different world. We all share a longing for home to belong. And Jesus starts his description of heaven for his scared disciples with a very simple statement. You belong, you're home. In my father's home, there are many rooms. And then he says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to a place for you? In essence, he's looking at his disciples and saying, you can trust me. You were there when I stilled the sea. You were there when I fed the 5,000 with some kid's lunch. You were there when I raised Lazarus from the dead. Peter, James, and John, you saw me in all my glory, fully transfigured on the mountain. I can be trusted when I say something is true. And for some of you listening, you've follow Jesus long enough that that really resonates with you. You can look back over your story and your life and you can say with confidence, Jesus keeps his promises. And there can be others who might be listening who are newer in following Jesus as their savior. And what I would tell you is he can be trusted when Jesus says something is true. And if he says, there's gonna come a day when you're home, you belong. You can count on it as being true. So. Here's the second thing I want you to see in the text from verse three. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. So if the first point is you belong, here's the second point, the house is paid for. So I know some of you are still kind of caught up on this. In my father's house, there's many mansions and you're thinking, well, if it took Jesus six days to create the world and he's been working on my house for the last 2000 years. Like this house has got to be pretty sweet. Like I bet there's a pool. I bet there's a hot tub. I I bet it's awesome. I bet it never runs out of hot water. And and you're thinking about this house that he's been preparing for you. Well, I, I hate to pop that bubble but I don't think he's talking about going to heaven to build out your house. And what's delaying his return to come back and take us to himself is not that he's waiting for some final approval or waiting for some piece of trim to come in. Remember the context in which Jesus is talking. His disciples are not thinking about him going to heaven. They're thinking about him going to a cross and dying. He's not telling his disciples these things as he's ascending to heaven. He's telling them these things is he's about to be betrayed and go to the cross. Hey, reality check. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says, in my father's house, the house is completed. But what Jesus is doing and what I think he's trying to explain to the disciples is what you're going to witness in the next couple days is really important because it's going to prove that the house is paid for. I believe what Jesus is doing here is he's using a near far-term prophecy. And the point of a new near far-term prophecy is to explain to the disciples the things that you will witness and see in the next few days. My death, my resurrection should give you greater assurance when I tell you that I'm going to return for you and take you to heaven someday. The near-term fulfillment gives greater confidence that the future prophecy is also true. And Jesus, by going to the cross, well, Scripture says it best. It says when he went to the cross that we were bought with a price, that we were set free, that we were redeemed. And what the cross does is it communicates contractually for those who follow Jesus that Jesus has paid the price, the house is bought, we have been purchased with his blood. It's interesting, Paul will go on in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter one, when he's explaining everything that is ours in Christ Jesus, he says this in Ephesians 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, that, that word guarantee could just as well be translated down payment, who is the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, what Jesus is teaching is I bought you when I went to the cross, I redeemed you. The Holy Spirit is the down payment for the house. And then he promises these scared disciples, he says, I will come again and take you to myself. I will finish the deal, I will take possession. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ were meant to assure these disciples that everything Jesus was promising them about heaven was true. So finally, let me just give you the third point. The first point, you belong. The second point, the house is paid for. And then I just want you to see this little phrase that closes verse three. It says, that where I am, you may be also. This point, I would just call this, it's Jesus saying, it's him reminding his disciples, hey, you're with me. When, all the way back in Genesis 3, when man chose to sin and to rebel against God, it's interesting. Um, Obviously, he was going to have to leave the garden that created a separation. But the real pain of that sin was not just that they weren't going to be able to enjoy free fruit or there was a curse placed on the woman or placed on the man. The, The real loss at the garden, they lost God. There was a separation that was created. The relationship grew distant. And, and what Jesus is reminding his disciples here is he's saying, listen, you're going to be with me. He's not inviting them to come hang out at his house. He's not saying, hey, you can enjoy all of my stuff. What he's telling the disciples is there's a day coming when you're with me. We're gonna be together. Their relationship is restored. I got to tell you is this um, season in our country of, of separation and, and, and isolation continues. And we're also concerned about social distancing. I, I can say without hesitation, the most difficult part of this for me has been the fact that I don't get to uh, run up and hold my grandkids, that there's had to be a degree of separation between me from my grandkids. I mean, that's just really, really difficult. I wanna be with them. I wanna hang out with them. I don't just wanna see them. We've had the opportunity to see them, but to hang out with them and to give them a hug and, well, we just haven't been able to do that in this season. And what Jesus is telling his disciples, there's no more barrier, man. We are going to hang out together. You're with me. 318 times in the New Testament, Jesus either alludes or the writers allude or they directly reference the fact that when the Lord is going to return, he's going to take us to be with him personally. Jesus is communicating to his disciples. I want you here. You're with me. I hate the fact that for over four weeks, I've been separated from my grandkids. I don't want to miss these moments. Nico's son, William, he just turned one during this season. And I'm looking at this and going like, that kid's getting fun. He's getting so mobile. And it's so fun to see his expressions. He's growing into his head. I don't want to miss this. Like this is a fun season for grandparents. And Jesus is reminding his disciples in the midst of a very scary time. He's like, hey, listen, you belong. The house is paid for and you're with me. It's interesting, just a couple verses later, a couple chapters later in John 17, we find Jesus praying right before he's betrayed. And listen to what he tells his father. He says in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The first thing that we will notice when we pass from this life to the next, the first thing that we will observe when we get to heaven is this feeling that we belong and that we are loved and that God is saying, hey, listen, you're with me. John 14, 2 and 3. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. You belong. The house is paid for. You're with me. Set your minds on these truths. You guys are loved, you are missed. I hope we're together soon.